Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, found on page 1064. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, church. Nice to be here again tonight. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. I'm trying to keep your Bibles open at Revelation 3, and I'll pray for us tonight. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to gather. So thankful for the freedom we have to meet week by week. Father, thank you for your, your life-giving word. I want to thank you for those men and women who laboured to translate that word into our own tongue. And we pray for the many people around the world who don't enjoy that privilege of having the scriptures in their own language. But Father, we come tonight expectant that as your word goes out, it will not return empty. We pray for a powerful work of your Holy Spirit. So please illuminate your word and soften our hearts and show us, show us what you have in mind for us tonight. We love you, Lord, and we're dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk tonight about confidence, about confidence. Now, confidence is a really beautiful thing. It's, it, it's important to be confident. You need to be confident of who you are in Christ. You need to be confident you're forgiven and restored and redeemed. You need to be confident in the gifts that God has given you. You need to be confident to do the right thing, to do your best. Confidence can be a great thing. But confidence can also be a very dangerous thing. It's possible to be a bit too confident, to be overconfident, to be self-confident, to be a bit smug. You met those overconfident people and they have that, that aura of smugness about them, a bit proud. Uh, think of the, uh, the athlete who is a shoe-in for the gold medal and they are so confident and on the day, they always underperform. Or, or think about the, the, the high school student who is so confident this HSC is going to be so easy. They do no study, and they don't do as well as they could have done. Or think about the church, an overconfident church. Because, hey, we know how to do church. We've got great music, we've got great preaching, we've got the people, we've got the vibe. Hey, we can grow God's church. That's not particularly nice, is it? It's a bit smug, a bit arrogant, a bit proud. 
So confidence is a good thing, provided you have confidence in the right thing or the right person. But smugness and overconfidence, that is dangerous. And tonight we're looking at this overconfident church called Sardis. The Sardis was an overconfident city. Sardis thought they were the bee's knees for cities. They, they built this amazing city on this, this junction of all these trade routes. And they were overconfident in their wealth, in their riches. They, they minted their own coins. They had gold. They had silver. King Crescius lived there. He is the, the richest man that ever lived. They, they thought they'd made it financially. And they were overconfident in their healing that is amazing hot springs and everyone came to, to Sardis for healing and they were kind of smug about that. And they were overconfident in their own security because they, they built this amazing city on top of this mountain and they looked down on everybody else. And Sardis had these, these three sheer cliffs that surrounded it that were unscalable. And so just one enters into the city, and so of course they could guard that, and no one would ever conquer them. Except they did. Cyrus of Persia in 549 BC, they, they scaled those walls, they found a crack in the wall, and they conquered the city. And this smug, proud, overconfident city were defeated. That was the city of Sardis. We don't know much about the church. We don't know who took the gospel there or who the pastor was, but we know this, that like the city, the church was smug. They thought they knew how to do church. Come with me to that first Sunday morning when they would first read this letter to the of Revelation. Just imagine that you were there in Sardis that Sunday morning and, and everyone's gathered in Sardis and, and the place is buzzing, the vibe is awesome. New people are flocking to this church in Sardis. And as you walk up to the church in Sardis, you are greeted by a smiling welcomer with these sticky papyrus name tags. And you walk into the building and the music, wow, wow, these guys know how to do music. And they pray and they pray and they pray and they're praying for the floods and for the famines and for the earthquakes. You're thinking, wow, this is a great church. And the preacher preaches with clarity and with boldness. And people have their Bibles open. The church inside is there's no, there's no heresy. There's no heresy. There's no immorality. There's, there's no outrageous sin in this church. And they talk about aged care programs and kids' programs. Think, wow, this is a great church. And everybody else is talking about this church in Sardis. Oh, oh you go to Sardis, you've got to check out this church. I'd love to go to that church. It's an amazing church, amazing church. And so here they are on this Sunday morning, and, and they're about to hear from the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're gathered together, waiting to hear this circular letter. And I hope you realize that every church would hear each other's church's letters. And so they sit there in Sardis and, and, and the letters open, the scrolls opened. To the church in Ephesus, to the, to the loveless church, right? You've forsaken your first love. And all the people of Sardis say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, those dreadful Ephesian Christians. 
to the church in Smyrna, to the suffering church, right? I know your afflictions, but be faithful. And the church in Sardis says, oh, good on you, Smyrna, well done you. To the church in Pergamum, the compromised church, right? You're too cosy with culture. And the people in Sardis go, we knew that, we knew that. They're so cosy with culture. To the church in Thyatira, to the tolerant, sexually immoral church, right? Repent. And the people in Sardis says, yes, repent of all that wicked sexual immorality. And they're sitting there, they're waiting to hear the words of Jesus Christ about how they're doing, and they are so smug. Because, hey, we're this great church with a great name. To the church in Sardis, right? I know your deeds. And the people say, oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you. We have so many good deeds. We have so many programs, so many activities. Our calendar's so full. You have a reputation. Oh, we do. We have a reputation. People are, are approaching us saying, what a great church. Can we have your belonging course? Can we have your, your mission statements? You have a reputation for being alive. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You have a reputation for being alive. But you're dead. But you are dead. <laughs> dead. <laughs> And they're thinking, no, you got the wrong letter. This is not us. We're alive. We've got our programs. We've got our people. We've got our activities. People are talking about the church in Sardis. And he says, no, you're dead. You have no life in you. That is the shock of this letter, the audible gasp in Sardis. Because they think they are somebody's. And God sees. God sees beyond the externals, God sees beyond the, all the events and activities that there is no life in this church. Jesus wants to shake this church out of complacency and out of arrogance and out of smugness and out of overconfidence. He loves them enough to do that. And he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this has been my prayer this week because I, I, I love this church. I love the Bridge Church. And I love what God is doing in this church. But there is a bit of a fear that we could become smug, that we could become a bit overconfident and think that we have made it. And so I've been pleading with God and praying to God on my knees this week, praying that we would not be an overconfident, smug, sardis church. I don't miss him. I don't think we are, but there's a danger there, isn't there? Verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives his harsh report. He, he holds the seven stars. We know from Revelation 1 that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. The, the, the word angels, it could be angelic beings who are defending the church. It could be human messengers, human ministers. We, we don't really know. The point is that Jesus holds this church. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. That's really important each letter has a description of Jesus that's going to define this church. 
And Jesus holds the seven spirits of God or, or literally the sevenfold spirit of God. That number seven means completion or perfection. So this is a, the perfect, complete spirit of God. And we call him the Holy Spirit. That, that's why we had Isaiah 11 read. Because the spirit of the Lord rests upon Jesus. He is the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, of fear of the Lord. This is the life-giving, all-powerful, all-encompassing spirit of God. The creed says that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no life. So for a church to have spiritual life, it needs to be all about the Lord Jesus Christ, Yes. For church to have spiritual life, the Spirit of God must be in that church. Breathing new life into lost sinners, equipping, empowering, enabling, maturing the saints. For church to have life, it needs to be all about God. And that might sound an obvious statement to make, but that was the real issue in Sardis and in so many churches. They have programs and activities and social events and all good stuff, but they've lost their focus on the life-giving source who is God himself. There is no life because Jesus has left the building. There is no life because the power of the Spirit is quenched or denied in this church. And there is no life because it's not about God, it's about people. So that's the problem. The problem, they are spiritually dead. Look at verse 1. You have a, a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The word there is necros. It means an absence of life. You're dying before our eyes. An outer shell is there, but there's no life there. There's no breath. There's no spirit. There's no Jesus. There's no God in you. It's death by complacency, death by smugness. And it's shocking now, we often say you can't judge by appearances. And yet, let's be honest, we all do all the time. We just judge by what we see. And Jesus does not judge by what he sees, because Jesus sees beyond the exterior. He sees into the heart. He judges by his knowledge. And he says, verse 1, I know. I know what you're really like. I know everything. I'm, I'm omniscient. I see not just the activity, but the motivation behind the activity. And there are two issues in this dead church, reputation and rituals. Reputation, you have a reputation of being alive, a glowing reputation. The word there, you've made a name for yourself. You've made a name for yourself. Other people talk about your church. It's not a name for Jesus, you made a name for yourself. Everyone's impressed by this church. As I say, there's no heresy, no outrageous sin, no immorality. Every Sunday they met together, sang songs, said the prayers, listened to sermons, gave their offerings, ran programs, public strategic plans, sat on parish council. It all looked impressive. And other people said, what a marvellous church you've got. You must be very proud. But it's a sham, it's a facade. And Jesus sees behind the facade and says, no, you're dead. Look at verse 4. You have a few people inside. It's just a few, a remnant, who have not soiled their clothes. The implication being that most people had soiled their clothes. 
Uh, the word for clothes there is actually character. It's interesting. They looked great on the outside, but underneath they had a corrupt character. Uh, reputation is what other people think of you. Character is what you're really like when no one sees you. And in this church, is a facade. It's like when you go to the doctors and you go to the doctor and say, oh, I've just, I've just got this, this niggling headache. I, I just can't shake it. I've taken Panadol. I've taken Panadine 4. I just can't shake it. But it's okay, doctor. I, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I'm strong. Everybody else says to me, wow, for, for your age, for a 50-year-old, you're pretty good looking. And the doctor said, oh, look, it's not about how good looking you are. And yes, you've got this headache, but actually... You've got a brain tumour. And you can't quite believe it. You go, this is ridiculous. This is sardis. They can't quite believe it. But remember Isaiah 29? God says people honour him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's possible to stand in church, sing songs, say prayers, but your hearts are not connected with God. Or Jesus talking to the, to the Pharisees, they said they all dressed up in their religious garments, looking holy, quoting scripture, and Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, you're dead people walking. So a reputation might be different to reality. What about rituals, verse 2? He says, strengthen what remains is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. In the sight of God, they're unfinished. In the sight of people, how people see them, there are deeds and deeds and works and works, but he said, they're not God deeds, they're unfinished deeds, or they're incomplete deeds, they are superficial, they are aimless, it's just a shell. Why are they unfinished? This is the issue in this church. Why are these deeds unfinished? It's because there's no spirit of God in them. It's lifeless. It's spiritless. It's full of nominal, enthusiastic, well-meaning, but spiritless Christians. That's the link to verse 1. Jesus holds the seven spirit. Jesus brings the Holy Spirit. The most important thing in any church is to be focused on Jesus, dependent on his spirit. Because works without the Spirit are just dead works, unfinished works. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 3 that really niggles at me. Talking about the church, it says it has the form of godliness, but denies the power. The form of God, all the ingredients of church, but no power because God is not there. I've been thinking a lot this week about what a, a dead, lifeless spiritless church might look like. A dead, lifeless church will be prayerless. Will be prayerless. Endless activities, but not undergirded by prayer. Actually, it's not just that. It's, it's not that we rubber stamp our plans with prayer, but we start with prayer. A spirit-filled church will start with prayer, seeking God's wisdom, God's leading, God's guidance on what we should be doing. Why is it that the central prayer meetings are so poorly attended? Do you not depend on the personal work of the Spirit through prayer? A dead, spiritless church will look more like a business than a church. Processes, systems, management structures, 
position descriptions, KPIs. It all looks impressive, but actually we forgot it's about people. A dead, spiritless church will have very polished preaching. Wonderfully scripted sermons, perfectly delivered, polished performance. But that's not preaching. Preaching is about sitting under the word of God and asking the spirit to to lead, to direct, to illuminate. Preaching is not a performance where you just press play and deliver the same sermon. It's actually looking at the people and saying, what do they need to hear? God, lead me. God, direct me. Spirit of God, help me to preach tonight. A dead, spiritless church often has pastors who are spiritually dry. Pastors who are not reading the scriptures and not praying and not relying on a life-giving, joy-giving spirit or, or Perhaps it's just a job for them. Or pastors who are spiritually proud, a bit of an ego, a celebrity pastor. A dead, spiritless church talks a lot. Lots of talk about what we have done in the past. Remember the days we did this and we did that and we did this as though nothing's happened for the past 20 years. We're living off the past. Or we talk a lot about what we will do, what we will do, rather than what God might do through us. Remember the Corinthian church? They talked endlessly about giving. They talked and talked and talked about giving. Never actually bothered to give. But here's what I've been really convicted of. A dead, spiritless church will grow. Will grow. But by transfer growth, not conversion growth. If we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, if we believe that the Spirit brings new life to dead people, if we really believe in hell, that people are lost without Jesus, then a Spirit-filled church will be on mission, will be evangelised, will be sharing their faith. And praise God, we are growing as a church. We're a 1,000 adults, 250 kids. Praise God for that. But the reality is the last three to four years, most of our growth has come through transfer. We're living off the past. We've got a few stories of people who have come to faith. And we love to talk about Alpha. We love to talk about Christianity's book. It makes us feel good. Hey, we're a church on mission. But are you on mission? I come from the UK. Thousands of churches are like this. Dead, lifeless, spiritless. The Church of England was famous for sending great missionaries to Africa, to India, to America, to Australia, to China. They were on fire. But today, every year in the UK, about 100 churches closed its doors. They're selling off buildings, church buildings, to be gyms and restaurants and cafes and mosques. You can go to eBay tonight and you can, you can buy a church baptismal font to be a birdbath for your garden. Or a nice pew as a bit of home decoration. Perhaps worse than that is churches that still gather week in, week out, and people still think they're amazing, but they are lifeless and powerless and spiritless. They're dead. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we don't need processes, systems, strategies. I'm not saying we don't need activities, but but the most important thing that we need is the person of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, right? 
That's what church is, men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women who love Jesus. It's not about numbers. You can have an auditorium packed to the rafters with people, but they don't love Jesus and they're not living God-honouring lives. You have a little gathering of 20 old people, an organ and a prayer book. If those people are spirit-filled and love Jesus, the Spirit of God is there. That's a lifeful church. That's a dead church. This is the problem. Sardis, they were so smug, so confident. But Jesus had left the building. Here's the prescription. Spiritual revival. Spiritual revival. A.W. Tozer says this. It is scarcely possible in most churches today to get anyone to attend a church meeting where the only attraction is God himself. One can only conclude that God's people must be bored of God. So today we have to woo people to meetings with the lure of refreshments and candy as if God wasn't enough. It's true, isn't it? Here's the prescription, God is enough, God is enough, all you need is God. If the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit can, can heal sick people and bring dead people back to life again, physically, he can do that spiritually. And can I just say, friends, if the church is dead, it's because the individual people are dead. So we tonight need to just check our hearts. Are, are we spiritually on fire? There, there are five imperatives in this passage. He says, wake up, verse two, wake up. Wake up, be alert, be watchful. Remember that city of Sardis? They slept because they thought they were inconquerable. And Jesus says, open your eyes, your heart. What's happening to you spiritually? Is there life in you? Is there life in your church? Get a, get a spiritual health check. Now, I assume that you get a physical health check from time to time. When was the last time you did a spiritual health check? When was the last time you sat down and thought, is Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? Is he centre of everything? Am I, am I depending on the Holy Spirit every moment of every day? Have I slipped into self-confidence? Am, am I desiring to grow? Am I wanting to struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil? He says, wake up. And strengthen, verse 2. Strengthen what remains. The word there means to reinforce, to firm it up. He says, cultivate your inner life with God. Strengthen is is actually a gym word. Go to the spiritual gym. And can I say, don't just talk about it, actually do it. I meet loads of people who buy a gym membership. They buy a gym membership and buy the gym clothes, but never bother to go to the gym. I meet loads of Christians who buy a new Bible, but never bother to read it. They strengthen, put on your, your spiritual muscles, do your Bible, your prayer, your fasting, your fellowship, your giving, your growing. Wake up, strengthen, remember, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. What have they received and heard? They received and heard the gospel. Remember the gospel, he says. Remember that at one time you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. Remember that? Remember it's God's free gift, it's God's grace. Remember that Jesus died for your sins. Remember that Jesus loved you enough to go to the cross for you. Remember that. Remember that Jesus was a victorious one who defeated death on that first resurrection Sunday. 
Remember that the, the same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. He's called the Holy Spirit. Remember that, remember that. Uh, when I say remember, I don't just mean bring it to mind. On Friday last week, it was a friend of mine's birthday. It was in my iCal. And I got a reminder on the Thursday. And I remembered it. I did nothing about it. Didn't send a text, didn't write a card, didn't give a gift. And when I see her next, she might say, oh, it was my birthday last week. And I say, oh, I remembered that. I said, she'll say, really? But you did nothing about it. That's not remembering. Remembering is when you act on what you remembered. I just recalled it was her birthday. I didn't bother to act on it. The word remember means that you act on it. So you don't just remember the facts of the gospel, but the facts of the gospel actually shape your whole life. It rids you of pride and it throws you again at the foot of the cross. And you say, thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in me. So wake up, strengthen, remember, hold fast, verse 4. Verse 3, rather, hold fast. Keep on believing the gospel. Keep on living out the gospel. Don't move on from it. One of the saddest things of the past is to hear people say, oh, I used to be an evangelical, but I moved on for that. I'm now a post-evangelical, whatever that means. Just stick with the gospel. It is really simple. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. He sent his Holy Spirit. That's it. And then repent. Repent, verse 3. Uh, that word repent comes in every single letter because repentance isn't just a one-off thing. It's that ongoing, daily, constant recognition that you've done the wrong thing. You want to stop that and start doing the right thing. This is spiritual revival. This is a spirit-filled church where you wake up, you put on your spiritual strengthening, that you remember the gospel, you hold fast to the gospel, and you, you daily repent. It's living every day saying, Jesus, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every day I need you. It's living each day thinking, okay, I want to keep in step with the Spirit today. Spirit of God, fill me. I want to be filled with the Spirit again today. I don't want to grieve the Spirit. I want to keep in step with the Spirit. I want you to gift the Spirit. I want to strive for the fruit of the Spirit. That's what this church inside us was lacking. It's what you and I need to do every day. Wake up, strengthen, remember, hold fast and repent. And Jesus is so kind to this church. Jesus could have said, well, they're dead and buried. Rub my hands with them. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to do that. He said, if you don't repent, I will come to you. I'll come like a thief in the night when you don't expect it. I will judge you. But that's not his heart. He's warning them because he wants them to be alive again. Here's the promise. I'll finish with this. The promise of spiritual life, verse 4. Such a great verse. There are a few people inside us, just a few, just a remnant, but God can work with a few. He worked with a few loaves and fishes. He can work with a few Christians to bring life back to that church. A few who haven't sawed their clothes. Here's the promises. They will walk with me. That's a promise of intimacy. Just as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, just as Noah walked with God, just as Enoch walked with God, that you and I will walk with Jesus. Have you thought about that? Could you imagine 
walking face to face with the risen reigning Lord Jesus, just he's your best companion, your best friend. No guilt, no fear, just his beautiful intimacy with Jesus. That's unpromised. Your walk with Jesus. Verse four, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. That's a, a promise of purity. Dressed in white, the white robes of victory, the white robes of salvation, of righteousness, of purity, for they are worthy, verse four. And you read that and you think, no, I'm not. I'm not worthy. And in and of yourself, you're not worthy. Your best deeds are but filthy rags. But when you come to Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, when you've had your robes washed in the blood of Jesus, then you are worthy because you're cleansed. You're forgiven, you're ransomed, you're restored, you're redeemed. And God says, you are worthy. It's intimacy, it's purity, and it's security. Verse five, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. That's the promise. I want to say, church, I don't care. God does not care if your name is written in some baptismal book somewhere. God doesn't care about that. And God doesn't care if your name's on a church register somewhere or electoral roll. God doesn't care if you've got a plaque in church named after you. But God does care that your name is in his book of life. The promise here is that if your name is in the book of life, if you trusted Jesus... If you believed in Jesus, he's got a pen. He's written the name Paul Dale or your name into this book. Not with pencil, so you can rub it out. But with blood. I will never blot out that name. You might be here tonight, friends, and you are feeling insecure. You're questioning, am I really a Christian? If you have believed in Jesus... If you've trusted in his death for you at the cross, if you believe he rose again, you are a Christian. Your name's in the book. And nothing and no one can take your name out of that book. And your confidence is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And you'll stand on the last day with white robes, enjoying walking with Jesus and being secure for all eternity. Because Jesus will say, he's mine, she's mine, I died for him, I died for her. So I want to ask, what does, what does Jesus think when he looks at you? And what does Jesus think when he looks at this church or looks at me? Please don't be fooled by exteriors and externals. I want Jesus to see a church that are, that are confident, but not self-confident, but Christ-confident. Confident not in who we are or what we can do, but confident in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do by the power of his Holy Spirit. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Father, we... We acknowledge that it's easy to be smug, overconfident, self-confident. We're so sorry, Father, for times in this church where we have just 
made our plans, done all this endless stuff, endless programs, but we haven't undergirded that with prayer. We haven't sought your will. We haven't been led by you or guided by you. We're sorry, Father, for times when we have trusted our own abilities and haven't lent on Christ and the power of his spirit. Father, we pray that you would breathe life again into this church, that you'd breathe life into every man and woman and boy and, and, and girl, that we'd be dependent on your spirit, seek your will, and seek to honour you and you alone. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that this church would honour our Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray.